Well, good morning, everyone. This is week two, where we're talking about William Tyndale. Last week, we focused on Tyndale as a translator and associated the translation of the Bible into English with an understanding of historical grammatical interpretation, high fidelity to the words of the text, and an understanding of that text as it is embedded in a history. This week, we're going to explore more of William Tyndale, less him as a person. That was a lot of what we talked about last week. But this week, we'll dive into him as a figural interpreter. What does that mean? And I want to develop this idea of what it means to interpret figurally and perhaps also practice some ourselves uh, within that framework. So I begin not with Tyndale, but with Willa Cather. Uh, she is a great American author, and in her book, Death Comes for the Archbishop, in the first chapter, you have uh, Bishop Latour is out in, uh, I believe it's Arizona, uh, and he sees this juniper tree in the shape of a cross. It had grown into the shape of a cross. And in that moment, he kneels down, and he worships there because this cross was there in that form. And uh, what's really striking about that scene is here is somebody so well-practiced in seeing in the world the shape of the cross that he can't help but worship everywhere he goes because he sees the cross. And I think this is uh, a model for what we mean by figural interpretation. What is it that we are training ourselves to see when we are reading the text? We can see crosses everywhere when we, when we walk around, when we look around this room. Uh, architecture is often uh, eliciting crosses everywhere. I teach geometry on a daily basis, and it is often the case that the transept of two parallel lines forms crosses. Or here we have two vertical angles in the center of a circle that are forming a cross. Every day in geometry class, there is cause to worship. Isn't that right, Cameron? Okay. <laughs> so we, we have these crosses everywhere, moments of devotion where we have a well-trained sense of what is at the center of history, what is at the center of salvation history, what is our own experience of the salvation of God in Christ. So taking us then to William Tyndale, uh, we can learn from him certain aspects of his, his makeup as an interpreter uh, that is very instructive to us. He sincerely believed that there was this pneumatic power. What this means is the power of the spirit, it blows wherever it wants. And when we are open to that spirit guiding us as interpreters, um, that can be a little wild, can't it? 
Uh, we need to be open to the Spirit eliciting in us our affections, arresting our attention. And this can happen as we read through the text. Certain words, ideas, impressions arrest our attention. And what we want to do is cultivate a sensitivity to that spiritual power, that pneumatic power of allowing the Spirit to capture our attention so that we can be highly responsive to the ways in which the Spirit may want to use that text in our lives. Then there is the moral force of Scripture. And what do we mean by the moral force? Not that everything should be read moralistically, as though it is uh, a moral example. We read the life of Joseph in order to be like Joseph. We read the life of David to be like David or something like that. Instead, I think if we understand the moral force of the text as constantly pressing us, causing us to consider what is now a new way that I am being brought to repentance? What is a new way that God is bringing me to a confrontation with Christ so that I can be shaped again into his image. This is the moral force of the text, to constantly be wrestling with it, like Jacob wrestled with God, and we come away changed. So that is the moral force of the text. And then, finally, that the text brings us closer to Christ. And that closeness to him is kind of like the disciples, right? We are, we are disciples of Christ as we read the text. Just as the twelve and, and others walked with him, supped with him, uh, the, this is the lifestyle of discipleship, to walk closely with our Lord. And as we read, we want to cultivate that sense of of being with Christ in our reading, that he is right there with us, and in that reading that we can be formed closer and closer to, to that image. So this is the figural uh, interpretation that is very much a Tyndalean uh, idea, and one that I think we can can very much adopt. It feels very comfortable to, uh, to take on board what William Tyndale is proposing. Uh, at, and so I wanted to give you an example. You have the text of Matthew 12. And I'll read this aloud for us, and you can follow along in your handout. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Do you guys remember doing the grammatical interpretation of this last week? Yes, beautiful. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. As Tyndale reads this passage, he's able to identify many linkages in this text that occur from Jesus to Jonah. So Jesus and Jonah, how do they link up? Well, there's the obvious point of the three days and three nights. There is this equivalence between Jonah's experience in the belly of the whale and Jesus' experience of death and then resurrection on the third day. And for many of us, this may seem the really obvious figural point. But Tyndale goes on and he identifies how the preaching of Jonah is also available to be figurally read. Isn't the preaching of repentance exactly what Jesus is doing? And then there's this call upon us to be preachers of repentance. And so he sees in this the nature of preaching of repentance is something that is the nature of God's salvation. That this is the business we are all to be about. And so there's this stunning reflection he has as he sees in Wycliffe, one of his predecessors. Wycliffe preached repentance unto our fathers not long since, meaning not long ago. They repented not, for their hearts were injurate. But what followed? They slew their true and right king and set up three wrong kings a row. As Tyndale is reading scripture and seeing the linkages between Jonah and Jesus, he also sees ways in which he can interpret his own most recent history in light of scripture. So there is this figural layering that goes on as Tyndale is reading scripture and understanding not just what the Bible is saying, but how it creates a framework for understanding the nature of reality, we might call it. So we ourselves can read figurally to understand, well, what is happening in our world? What is it that is going on when we have global pandemics, wars breaking out throughout the world, uh, really odd political discourses emerging. Is it possible that we could say the preaching of repentance remains important and people are not repentant and therefore we see the consequences of these things? Now, I don't have a, a granular understanding of how all of these things link up, but I get this sense of God's economy is such that repentance remains important. The cross is the center of our reality, and there is this continual need, therefore, to be drawn back to the cross, back to Christ, and to understand how that is the explanatory model for the Bible and all of reality 
even our most recent history. So this is figural reading, isn't it? It's difficult and sometimes confusing, but really worth it. So how do we go about doing this? Um, it's a new interpretive paradigm, but it's really old as well. What, what I think we've experienced is a history that has this little parentheses in it, an enlightenment parentheses. So this, uh, this last week when we talked about the historical grammatical interpretation of scripture, where we are reading the word in order to, in a sense, boil it down to propositions. There's this um, historization that happens when we interpret with that model that in some ways runs counter to this figural reading that the church had always done, and then it interrupted that. And I think now in a, in a, a somewhat post-enlightenment environment, we're saying, you know, there was something to that form of reading that we want to recapture and bring forward, not to drop sensitivity to the word, meaning grammatical understanding, and not to drop a, a sensitivity to the history of the text, but that there's more going on in the text than just a scientific dissection of the text. Okay, so what is this? Um, I want to propose three figural questions. I don't know uh, that these have been brought forward by many interpreters. I'm actually drawing these from nature study. What is nature study? This is where we, we take children out into nature and we observe and we question and we wonder and we, we make connections. We often are journaling these things. And when I say we, uh, the, this is a, a pretty normal experience at the school I, I work at, at Clapham School, where we use a Charlotte Mason uh, pedagogy. And the, these three questions are great guides to what we're doing out in nature. What do I notice? This is observation. What does this make me wonder? What questions does this raise in my mind? This is imagination. It, it sparks something in my mind that makes me uh, have new questions. And what does this remind me of? This is recollection. Things that I've learned previously where I can, can make connections between what it is I'm, I'm noticing and other things that I'm remembering. These three questions, what do I notice? What does this make me wonder? What does this remind me of? Now in observation, this is a very word, idea driven exercise, isn't it? I'm reading the text and as I'm reading, there are words, phrases, ideas, sentences, clauses that will, like I said earlier, arrest our attention. As a spirit-driven exercise, we're cultivating that sensitivity to be able to respond to that. What is it that my attention is being uh, drawn to in my reading of the text? With imagination, one of the things we want to do is have a well-trained imagination. And you might think to yourself, well, imagination should be creative, unfettered, but it needs materials to build on. 
And this is where study can be very formative to our imaginations. So doing things where we understand more and more the history of ancient Israel, or the culture of honor and shame societies, or the, the economy of the ancient world, family structures. Uh, there's this beautiful Roman coin on our, on our uh, uh, church bulletin today. So just understanding the material world of the ancient world, understanding that their math was geometry. Algebra had not been brought from the Moors to Europe yet. And so there are just ways in which we can embed ourselves into an understanding of the biblical world. How did they think? How did they move? What were th these understandings train our imagination to come up with ways of understanding the text in vibrant ways where we can sense and feel the dust on Jesus' feet, the garments rippling as he walks along. That kind of imagination is what we're cultivating. And it makes us wonder, well, what would it have been like to dine with Jesus? What would it have been like to be Joseph among his brothers? Okay, so that imagination and recollection. The more we read throughout our Bibles, doesn't that mean we're pouring over these things that give us more and more opportunity to recall. The more often we recite and meditate on the creed, doesn't that give us more and more opportunity to recollect those things that we believe? Okay, so what does it take to interpret figuratively? And I want us to consider these three ideas. The centrality of the cross, being able to see the cross in the world around us, but also in the word that we're reading. We can see the cross in all of these moments throughout the Bible. I think very much about uh, the garden, for instance. Adam and Eve fall and they cover themselves with fig leaves, not the right form of covering. And what does God do as he sends them out of the garden? He gives them garments of, uh, of animals, animal skins. Well, where did those animals come from? Did they have to be sacrificed? There's blood in that sacrifice. The more appropriate sacrifice is made on behalf of Adam and Eve. Where does the, this doesn't come from an explicit statement in the text, but as you read in light of the cross, you become amazed and, and wonder, wow, God did something for them that is very consistent with the way salvation works. The consistency of the creed, the regula fide, the, the rule of faith, Every week when we are reciting the creed, we are pouring over these things that we believe. And in many ways, each of the clauses of the creed is like the seed, right? There's more to it than just what it is we're saying. Um, and we're, we're saying we believe these things, but we're also like, like the disciple, help my unbelief. I'm growing into a belief of all of these things that I'm reciting. Take, take me even more fully into this belief, uh, Lord God. And so as we read, 
I had mentioned earlier that the Spirit is like a wind. It will drive us any which way. But we can also be confident that that Spirit is not going to guide us into a pathway that would be inconsistent with the creed, right? So it's, we, it won't blow us into unorthodoxy, we might say. And so we can trust that that creed is there to give us some rails upon which we can be guided. And then finally, what does it take to interpret figuratively? We are interpreting within the community of the consecrated. So that I am not coming, you know, my, the burden on me is not to come up with some radical new individual interpretation. I am actually interpreting in light of the community of the saints down the ages that great cloud of witnesses who have likewise interpreted. So we read together. And uh, does that mean that we're always in 100% agreement with one another? Likely not. And so reading in community also means having a good, healthy dialogue and some ground rules for how we disagree and, and maybe debate debatable issues. Uh, with generosity and kindness and, and so forth. Well, in light of this, I think it's worth practicing together. So I have given us a couple of texts, and I've also given us a lot of time so that we can break down into some small groups. Before we read together, I want to make sure everybody has handouts. Do we have handouts? Good. And you may want... Um, a writing piece as well. And then I want you to take just a couple of moments now to uh, look around you, get to know the people around you because you're going to be talking with one another. If it's important for us to read in community, you need to get to know your little community around you, the three or four people that you're going to be reading scripture with. So look around, uh, give a name, take a name, Introduce yourself to who is your group right now. That's right. Move around if you need to. Here. I'll sit here and we can talk. Okay. Excellent. It looks like people have gotten to know each other. We've moved around appropriately. And I think we're now ready to dive into our first text. What I will do is I'll read this aloud. So that'll be your first reading. In your small groups, please feel free to read it aloud again. And what you're doing is you're thinking about observation. What am I noticing? What what are all of you noticing in your groups? It might be a word, it might be a phrase, an idea. What does this make you wonder? So you might have questions that emerge. Or I'm really fascinated by this. This, this gets me thinking about things. Those kinds of impulses are worth talking about, bringing up. This reminds me of statements are also really great to bring out. You know, when the author says this, it reminds me of this. 
Okay, so let me give us our first reading. Genesis 37, 29 through 36. This is when Joseph, who had been in a well, is, is now um, sold to others. Okay, so when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. All right, in your groups, discuss this passage.
let's bring it back together in three, two, one. All right. I heard so many great discussions going on. And we've got our microphone ready. I'd love to go around some of the groups and hear some of the ideas you were working with. Just some amazing things. We'll, we'll take volunteers to share some of the ideas that you were talking through. to be the first oh, person. Oh, it's hard to be the first, yeah. Oh, here we go. Here's a hand over here, this lovely young lady. The, qu the question is just to share what you learned in your small groups, okay? Uh, here we go, okay. Um, we observed just the elaborateness of the lie that um, that Reuben felt responsible for the choices that had been made and he kind of had this moment of crisis and instead of choosing to confess and try to rescue him or figure out what happened, instead they just created this really elaborate lie that takes up the rest of the paragraph. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. yeah. And, and we can understand how lie, like lying and depravity and all of that, isn't that in some ways our human condition? And you can you could trace lying throughout scripture, or at least dishonesty, dishonesty with yourself sometimes. Well, why is it that Adam and Eve hid in the garden? The betrayal with a kiss, you know, is fundamental. You know, there's just so many layers to, to that that starts, you can weave that through the Bible. Other, other ideas, Rich up here. Picking up on that lying theme, um, they didn't lie, but they did. They handed him a piece of cloth and said, is this your son's garment? There's nothing else. He concocted the rest of the story. So, it, I mean, they're brilliant in what they did. So, but, but that's the cunning and the, 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 that we see in this, in this passage. Mm. I heard a really fascinating comment in the back corner over here about the tearing of the robe. What did you guys make of that? Uh, yeah, we had a lot of kind of Christological themes coming out, but Ooh. one of the things we saw was uh, the tearing of the robes, and that reminded me of the tearing of the curtain in the temple. Wow, and, and what do we, tearing of the robe, the rending of the veil in the temple, what do we make of that? Um, according to Jewish tradition, there are two possible ways the Messiah can show up, and one of them is as Joseph, the suffering servant. And under oppression, the Jewish people looked for the Messiah to come as David, the conquering king. Mm. But Christ came as Joseph, mm. the suffering servant, mm. sold by his brothers. Um, and so Joseph is absolutely 100% an image of Christ in the mm. Old Testament. Wow, that's amazing. So you're saying there's some kind of connection between Joseph and Jesus. And we can look at details like the ripping of garments and the rending of the veil, you're bringing in some Isaiah, the suffering servant. So now is it true that today suffering occurs and there may be a Christ-likeness to the suffering we, do you see how those layers, those figural layers start to line up, okay? More comments, come on, bring them. And just adding to that, 
have uh, Joseph, who was in the pit uh, for a couple days and then was raised up, and later was salvation for death and resurrection in the life of Joseph. Amazing. Any other comments? Yeah. Um, yeah. The the passage about um, Jacob refusing to be comforted is mm. reminiscent of passage where it says Rachel is mourning for her children and mm. refuses to be comforted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Got another comment over here. Well, I'm, I'm back to the robe, but not so much that it was rended, but just that it was covered with blood mm. and mm-hmm. how when Jesus was beaten and then he, he had that robe put back on, I'm sure mm. it was just covered with blood on the cross. Yeah. And then we're also told that at the end of the age, mm-hmm. when he comes again as the judge and the lawyer, mm-hmm. he is coming with a robe mm. covered in blood, mm. which is a pretty stark um, thought. Yeah. And um, that somehow that shedding of blood is, is so significant. Mm in all these stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the sacrificial system is based off the shedding of blood, and then Christ is the ultimate. And what is it that we receive when we come up to the altar? And I love the fact that you even brought back Christ's second coming. You know, what, what are the garments, the robes, the royal robes that he is wearing? So, lots of beautiful thoughts. Mary? Well, I, I had kind of a Trinitarian one because the way that Jacob wept for his son. Um, It's an image of fatherhood. Mm -hmm. And when the son was in Sheol, he said, I will go down to Sheol and weep with him. Mm. So that was So, just to bring it back, we're seeing the cross, we're seeing Christ. There's the creed that's guiding our thoughts. Are we ready to go on to another passage? All right, you, this is going to take it to the next level of challenge because we are going to poetic literature, Psalm 1, the introduction to the Psalter. And I'll read this aloud for you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I'm going to add even one more layer of challenge to this by having an image of Jesus dining with sinners and tax collectors. Okay, groups, discuss.
so many great discussions going on, but we're gonna bring it back together again to hear some of the thoughts that you guys have talked about. So let's bring it together. All right. So many great, I, I'm hearing you use those questions. I wonder, this reminds me of. Hopefully those are, are really helpful tools. Anybody want to share, volunteer some thoughts? I don't know where to place them. Okay. I, I heard a great interpretive word over here. It's, it's complex, but Mary, I'm wondering if you could bring the microphone up to this beautiful gentleman up here. So, yeah, you had, you had mentioned a chiasm. What is a chiasm? Um, I'm not sure I can explain it extremely well, but kind of the structure where you have the beginning and ending kind of having the same message and it kind of progresses into a central theme maybe um, before again repeating. Right. Oh, it's at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And, and what, what particular elements were part of that chiasm? Well, just you can see with the walking with the wicked, standing with the sinners, uh, sitting with the scoffers, kind of mm. both at the beginning and the end culminating into I guess verse three with what a godly person is like um, in verse three. Mm. Chiasm is named after the Greek letter chi, which is an X, which forms what? Whew. Oh, okay, sorry. Had to go there. All right. Um, other comments? Thoughts, ideas? Uh, well, it, it, you could see uh, Jesus as um, uh, standing in the way of sinners mm. and um, sitting in the seat of scoffers, <laughs> um, but, but without the sin and without the scoffing, mm. mm -hmm. um, so that he's, he is like the tree that flourishes, mm. uh, though in a way that is not obvious. Uh, mm. He doesn't appear to be a highly successful businessman or, mm. or anything of that sort. There's a lot of power in that. When Early when I used to read this psalm, it was like, oh, I'm supposed to be like that blessed man, right? That's an impulse we have. But when we read, Jesus was that blessed man. And what I'm supposed to be is like him. He is the one. And he is able to dine with the sinners and the tax collectors without being muddied by them, he actually makes them holy in ways that I, I can't do that when I dine with tax collectors and sinners. But if I have Christ, so you see how there's those layers to reading this now in light of Christ. Other comments in the back here? What struck us was the um, passiveness or staticness of most of the passage, um, other than uh, delight in the law and meditates. Um, it seemed that, that the, the people who are judged have no choice in the matter. But Jesus is the, is the tree that does not wither. Mm. So that 
That's the only enduring thing mm. from this passage. Mm. Lovely. Okay, Rich, here. This might, this might have to be our last stop um, here. I think, I think another thing that's beautiful about the tree imagery is that it reminds me of um, John 15, Jesus being the vine and where the branch is grafted into that. Mm. And so Jesus being that tree, but then also us as readers knowing that we are in him, that we are also grafted into that promise. Mm. Well, because it's half past, I think that's about where we need to wrap up. Um, my prayer for you is that this won't be the last opportunity you have to read together, to consider these questions. It's exciting, it's energetic, sometimes tiring to whew, read and commune and discuss and all of these things. But hopefully there's this emerging skill that, uh, that you are all cultivating. Thank you, everyone. Well, thank you, Patrick. <laughs> it was a great session. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to let you know that next week, it, Father James is going to be teaching about uh, the ways that Thomas Cramner, our first Archbishop of the Anglican Church, the ways in which he interpreted scripture and understood scripture. So we're kind of progressing here. Um, Tyndale was an early reformer. Now we're actually into the period where is the establishment of the Church of England. So please come back. It's great. Thank you so much for your participation.